0: Welcome to another episode of The Root of All Business. This is your host bear and today's guest is Travis Wright. Travis currently works as a director of growth at Three Gimbals, which is a services firm that supports, supports the intelligence community. His career journey began in aviation as a helicopter pilot and then an airline pilot before becoming a military staff officer and eventually became a management consultant. Mm. Um, he's worked with uh, senior leaders across industries, helping them tackle tough problems. He's a lifelong learner. He's got a degree, a couple of degrees from um, uh, George Washington University. Let's welcome Travis. Travis, welcome to the show.
1: Dashworth, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation today.
0: Awesome. Uh, first of all, congratulations. Uh, your book published, was it yesterday or day before yesterday?
1: Yeah, it was yesterday. Yeah. So it's really exciting to see all this work. And I don't know if, it's, um, if it is serendipitous or not, but it took about nine months uh, for it to come out. So it kind of feels like a child uh, with all the, the work going into it <laughs> and that sort of thing. But, uh, but yes, it's very exciting uh, to finally see it out there. And uh, I, I don't have a physical copy yet. So I'm looking forward to that to actually hold it in my hands to, to make it feel real. But yes, it's very exciting.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I had kind of similar journey as well of, you know, writing the book. It took me two years, actually. Oh, gosh. And, uh, you know, once you hold it in your hand, and it becomes that real thing, it's it's just amazing. The book is called uh, Making New Mistakes. Tell us a little bit about that. How did that come about? And what's, what's the book about? And who's it for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So great questions. And so when I was uh, just starting off as a pilot, one of the things that we had to do is uh, every week, we had what we call pilots meetings, where you would go in and you would talk about, you know, some sort of, topic. And it was a way for the newer pilots to, to learn and do a little bit more research. And then uh, for the older pilots it's a little bit of a refresher. I remember the first time I had to go in and give my uh, my, my class and I was really nervous. You know, here I am, I was only 19 or 20 years old, and I'm going to teach this class to these pilots who've been in the army longer than I've been alive. What am I going to teach them? And I was afraid it's going to screw it up and all this sort of thing. And I had a, a great instructor who Give it, he had assigned the class to me, and he saw I was kind of struggling. He said, what's going on? And so said, I'm really nervous. I'm going to screw this up. And he said, well, you probably will. I'm like, all right, well, great. Thanks for the, the vote of confidence, right? <laughs> and um, so he said, no, you, no, listen to what I'm telling you. He said, look, what's going to happen is that uh, you, know, you probably will. You, you'll make some sort of mistake in all of this, but you've got some materials here. You've got me as a resource. People have given this class before. Um, I want you to add some more information and that sort of thing, but you have a a place to start from. So yes, you'll make mistakes, but now you're going to make your own mistakes, make some new mistakes uh, in, in the way that you do this. And that always sort of stuck with me. There's something empowering about that. Like, I'm going to screw up. Like, you know, we're all human. We're going to do stuff wrong. We're going to have good intentions, but it's it's going to, you know, it's not going to work out the way we planned and that sort of thing. So uh, I, I held that as a mantra where it's like, ah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to make my own mistakes. I'll screw it up in my own way, right? And I'll learn from it because right? that's that's how we learn. So that's sort of where it came from. And then, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, you know, I have this, this varied career path. It's non-traditional. I've been in multiple different industries and trying different things. And what I took from all of those is I saw a lot of patterns through all of those and a lot of the personalities and that sort of thing and some stories and met a bunch of fantastic people. So I kind of said, you know, I should do something with this. I started doing some blog posts, some LinkedIn posts and things like that. And eventually I said, you know what, I should put all this into a book. You know, there's a lot you know, in my head I want to get out and I think I can be helpful to people and so I did that, and uh, and that's what the book is. It's a collection of stories, and it's for e- either junior leaders who are aspiring to be senior leaders, or senior leaders who are in the midst of some sort of crisis or disruption. And it seems especially present, uh, pressure today because of the uh, the pandemic and that sort of thing. You know, obviously, I wrote all this before that, but this is a great time, I think, for the book to be coming out.
0: Awesome. Obviously, in this episode, we are talking about. We're going to be talking about you know, making and and kind of recovering from career mistakes, especially, you know, people in the position of leadership. What was your journey like to to what you're doing now, you know, being the director um, at the Three Gimbals? Yeah.
1: So I, and this was not something I had ever planned. If you'd asked me, you know, when I started my career, I would have said, well, I'll I'll be flying something somewhere. And uh, because I knew at five years old that I wanted to be a pilot. I was very fortunate that, you know, I, I had that in my head. And uh, I was able I had the aptitude and, and all the other sorts of things to be able to do that. So I, I it was all in on that career. And um, I went to the, I joined the army. I graduated from the army's flight school when I was 19. I went to my first unit and, and had a great career. And after about 10 years, I realized, look, I've been in all the units I want to be in. I've flown all the aircraft I want to do. I want to fly. What, you know, sort of what's next? And decided, you know, maybe I'll take a break. And so I got out of the army and became an airline pilot because staying in the aviation field. And that was cool for about a year. I got kind of old. I felt like a bus driver. So, uh, so well, uh, and have my family as well. I met my wife and we had our daughter. And I was like, I'm gone a lot with all of this. So I'd like to be home more. So I took a, a, a an office job in D.C. about 15 years ago. And I was... Just a program manager, worked, did some strategy and that sort of thing for the uh, for the military. Because I went back into the military, and um, I did that for um, probably about ten years or so. And again, I had a great career. I was really in the counter narcotics world. My last job, I I worked at the White House in the Drug Policy Office, which was you know a fantastic opportunity. A lot of you know great things going on there. I really enjoyed that. And then I decided to kind of shift again. I wanted to get out of the the military and out of the, the government sort of space and decided to go into management consulting. And I was still working a lot in the, the federal space, but not in the, the, the military space. So it's our uh, like social security administration and, and those types of places that, and our health and human services uh, that um, was where I did a lot of my work. And I did that for about five years. And it's like, all right, I feel like I kind of got my, my chops on this management consulting thing. And I had a friend who had started this company, Three Gimbals. And he said, hey, you know, it'd be great if you could come over here and help me out with um, kind of giving some of the structure, some of the bones to this, uh, this new and growing organization. And it was just another challenge. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. So wherever I've gone, I feel like I've, you know, I've, I've kind of squeezed everything I can out of whatever that, uh, that field is, taken mm-hmm. all the learning I can from it. And then applied it to whatever my next venture is. And uh, yeah, so it's been something I like to say it's, you know, I don't have a script, but I have a plan. And really my plan is like, you know, something that's exciting, challenging, you know, kind of keeps me energized and and excited. And I've been fortunate to have people to support me along the way to give me those opportunities and then to find that sort of interesting work.
0: What what kind of uh, um it's interesting you mentioned, you know, your friend on and, and three gimbals and then you you kind of to give the company a bit of structure and everything. So what kind of message do you give to your uh your employees now in, in this period in time? There's a lot of uncertainty, we don't know what's going to happen next.
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And there's a lot of that. So we are in the very enviable position in, in a couple of fronts. So before the pandemic, we're still growing and and that sort of thing, and we were we're actually being sought out. Like there wasn't much, you know, selling or business development that we needed to do. People were yeah. seeking us out, which is a very enviable position. The type of work that we do, uh, we support the, uh, the U.S. intelligence uh, community. And a lot of the work that we do is actually remote work. So a lot of this hasn't changed uh, for us a whole lot. We're still growing. We're still getting clients and that sort of thing because the intelligence you know, community is so important and vital that, you know, they're getting the, the funds but it is interesting that we are we're reversing our roles a little bit the intelligence community is so um closed off and for good reason right they 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 need to be to, to guard the nation's secrets and and that sort of thing so they've never had the opportunity to work remotely or to not be in a this secure facility and so what we've been able to do is sort of coach them a little bit on on how to do that um what it's like to work from home how to schedule your day and actually being a little bit more available when you're in that secure facility, you know, you don't have access to your, you know, private email or, or things like that. It's, it's really locked down. And so now, you know, with those other distractions uh, that they have and the other types of work that they can and can't do before we're able to actually kind of flip the roles a little bit and, and coach them and consult them a little bit on, on what that's like and how to be efficient um, in doing that. And, but to your point though, uh, you know, again, that's, that's our specific role and, and where we're at. And how we're able to be successful right now, and I definitely understand. I definitely have a lot of friends who are not in that similar position. And um, I was actually on a, a panel not too long ago talking about those small business owners and everything from restaurants to just independent consultants and, and coaches and that sort of thing. And you know, feeling you know, and hearing about their pain and how they're adapting and how they're they're moving forward. And the one quote that I liked, I shared with this group, is that. It's uh, it's from Charles Darwin, and he said that it's not the most intelligent or the strongest of the species that will survive, but it's the most the one that's most adaptable to change. So after sort of taking this shock of of all of this pandemic and the, the impacts and making, I think a lot of people have made those first shifts. So we've seen with restaurants, at least you know where I live, where they've shifted you know these sit down restaurants have shifted to doing curbside service and takeout and that sort of thing where they never did that before. So those are some of the initial steps, but it's, you know, how long is that going to last? Things are going to change so much, you know, whenever the, the lockdown is uh, lifted and that sort of thing, things will not go back the way that they were. And it's for the, the leaders, the business owners, and for others, this is a, a time of great opportunity, I think, to, to shifting business models and to, to making those changes, to being ahead of the curve. I think that's where, um, since we've been in this for what, a month or so now, is thinking about what is that, that next thing? Everything from, I guess the one, uh, the one last example I'll share is when I think back to the, uh, the recession here in the States back in 2008, prior to that, a lot of people were buying these, what we call McMansions, these really big homes and they had a lot of square footage and that sort of thing. And the housing crisis uh, hit and people like, now it's all about you know these tiny spaces and, and that sort of thing. And the advent of remote work. So how is that going to change when people go and look for traditional houses and they were looking for a three bedroom? Maybe now they look for a fourth bedroom because they're going to be working from home or, if, you know, both yeah. parties are, you know, uh, are working from home. Then how do they separate that? Or is it go, and I think that'll be one case of people remodeling, you know, maybe they had a theater room before. And now they realize they need an office because they're going to yeah. work remotely a lot more. So how is that going to sh- change for the construction industry? And maybe there will be a lot, or I hope there will be a lot more remote work and a lot more traveling. How will that change the travel industry where people realize, wait, I can work from anywhere. That's actually a thing now. It's, it's really possible. It's not just you know, something that you read about uh, that actually applies to my job. So how will that change conferences? And anyway, so all those sorts of things like the people that are able to see those opportunities, you know, come up with a solution to them and, and adapt quickly. are going to be the ones that are going to be successful of all this.
0: That's, that's something I strongly believe as well. I mean, even, you know, with all the technology we have, there was still about, I'd say about 60 to 70 percent people were working from home and the rest were still going into work. Because a lot of companies that still have that traditional thinking of, you know, if you're not in the office, you're not putting in the hours and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the opposite is true. When you work from home, you do put a, long, a lot longer hours because once you sit down and you get up three, four, five hours have gone, maybe you grab a coffee, come back because, you know, another four, five, six hours have gone gone by. So that, that's not really true. So what do you kind of, uh, how do you kind of ensure that, you know, especially may not be true for your company, but just generally with, with leaders that kind of think, you know what, I'm not, what would you say, how how they measure the, the results of their employees producing? Uh, because, you know, I could be working 10 hours and, you know, working on a complex problem whereas someone else because i come from a technical it background and i've seen this where this the way the stats can be manipulated right you can read it differently Mm -hmm. i could be working on a simple problems and i could do 50 of them you know i'm talking about a help desk along all those years ago to whereas someone who's working on a complex problem might be working on that one problem and might take two days so how do you kind of measure that
1: yeah so i and what you said before too is um is is really important i think about um, you know, we call it like butts and seats, right? If I'm a you know a, a leader who um, you know, I need to see you to make sure you're here and and that you're that you're working. And yeah. I'm using air quotes because if you think they're gonna they're they're not working from home, well they're they're probably not working uh, when they're at their desk either, right? So it's um, I think that's keep important. I was actually on a call the other day uh, for one of our our clients, and it was the leader of the organization. He was talking to you know thousands of people that are in the organization over the Zoom call, and he said. He was just sharing a story about how how this big federal bureaucracy needs to shift towards uh, this remote work, and so one of the stories he heard was somebody, uh, a manager, told one of their employees, said, uh, "Email me when you start telework, and then email me when you're done." Almost like you know, clocking in and clocking out via email. Yeah. So like that's that's not how we need to operate, right? It's a big paradigm shift for a lot of uh, a lot of people, and I think um, you're really hitting on that. And I think the other thing is that if you I think the solution I think is not to have these super quantifiable metrics such as help desk tickets and that sort of thing. Cause as soon as you set a target, like this is, this is the number what you're going to get that number, but what else is going to come at a cost of that? Like you're going to lose the innovation of, Hey, I keep getting this problem. How could I, you know, maybe make that better, but no, I've got to get, you know, my hundred tickets today or whatever, whatever the yeah. number is. And so I think a lot of it comes down uh, to two things, trust and communication. It's, um, Trust comes from the, really starts with the hiring process, right? What, what do you actually need? And being intentional about what, the, you know, what you need this role to do or to accomplish, and then finding the person that's, that's going to be uh, able and willing to do that. And then the, the communication part is, as a leader, I think it's really important to giving people the vision of what the organization is trying to accomplish and what their role is in that so if you think back to, gosh, I can't remember the astronaut's name, but it was in, uh, it was at NASA when they were, you know, the big, um, they're going to the moon and all those sorts of things. And um, he was sharing, he's like, you know, I would thank the the garbage man because he's helping me to you know, keeping this office clean so that these calculations mm-hmm. can get done so that we can get to the moon. Like every role is important. And if um, if everyone understands what their role is in the organization and how it feeds into Whatever the mission or the or the the goal of the organization is, that it it helps people to, co- to coalesce around that and to um yeah and a better the organization.
0: Sure, I'd love for you to share that Kodak story. Um, yeah. And 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 you know I I have been in situations like that. I'm not sure you have as well. You know, a lot of people, employees, you know, have ideas. They want to, you know, good or bad, they want their their leaders for them to be heard and, you know, listen to. And and a lot of the times also opportunities get you know missed and especially in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, the codec story that changed the whole dynamics of the industry, let alone you know, the company. So I'd love for you to share that story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is and actually how I found the story is really a, a testament to what I talked about before about sort of having a, a plan, but not a script. So when I was uh, going and interviewing different leaders and that sort of thing, I would. Share this general idea of what the book was about. And I'd say, as an example, because I'd read this case study before with, with Kodak, I said, that's eh, kind of like Kodak, you know, they invented the, the digital camera, but, you know, they didn't do anything with it. And I shared that with one leader. And he said, well, hey, would you like to talk to the, the inventor of the digital camera, you know, Steve Sasson?" I'm like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome. And so uh, he connected us, and we were able to talk. And it's one of the stories that, that I share in the book as well. And so I talked to Steve about it, and I, I had some misconceptions, I had some things wrong. So it's really good to get it from the horse's mouth. But Steve grew up in, he was sort of, a, sort of a junker. He liked to go out and just kind of find things and put things together and that sort of thing, kind of scrounge, scrounge around um, in New York. And he uh, ended up going to um, what was it, Rochester Institute of Technology, and he was a, an electrical engineer. And this was back in the early 70s, he graduated and got hired by Kodak. And at the time, Kodak was all about mechanical engineers because they were trying to get this very, you know, tight tolerances on these cameras. That was kind of, you know, their claim to fame was, you know, the, the clockwork type mechanisms that they had. And so they needed a lot of mechanical engineers. And he was almost hired on a whim. There was there were some things that were coming out in the um in the electrical engineering space, and so he was one of the few, you know, new electrical engineers that got hired. So he's sort of an outsider as he's coming in. And he just finished grad school. And uh, he shared with me, he said, you know, he didn't even like film. He was just like, you know, it was an opportunity to have a job. He just thought it would be uh, a good place to start his career. And um, so his boss came to him. He said, hey, I've got this project if you want to work on it. And so he jumped on it and he kind of took it a little bit further from what he was asked. And what he decided to do is he said, I'd like to make a camera with no moving parts. He was really just asked just to find out about this digital thing, what it's like. He said, but, you know, I'm gonna take it a little bit further. I wonder if I can make a camera with no moving parts. And so he did. Now, he had this great place to kind of get different, you know, camera pieces and parts from. He got some, like, parts of a movie camera and some other of these high-end cameras and that kind of stuff to kind of put this together. But after a few months, he was able to to figure it out and put it all together. And he went and, uh, demonstrated it. And now it's like, a, you know, the resolution is terrible by today's standards. This was 1975. So if you think, you know, back to then, you know, it's before a lot of, of <laughs> you and, and a lot of the listeners are probably born. But there was no internet. I mean, there's maybe DARPA internet had been invented by them, but it wasn't widely around. People just had uh, TV. They didn't have computers uh, in their homes. And when you also think about the... So two things, the business model and the way that uh, pictures were taken back then. So you know, you'd have to have um, a camera. Ideally, you'd have a Kodak camera, right? And then you have to go buy film, you take your pictures, and it was usually of like an event. You didn't just take pictures to take pictures because you would only have you know, 24, 36 pictures to take on the camera at, or on the film, and it was usually of an event, right? It was a birthday party, a wedding, or some sort of party or something like that, and, you know, you take a couple extra pictures to make sure you got it right, And but you wouldn't know for a couple of days uh, until after you got a fi- uh, had it developed. So what would happen is you would go buy the film, take your pictures at your event, you'd come back, you'd... I, to the store get them developed uh, to drop them off to get developed and then you'd come back a third time to get them uh, to pick up the prints and then ideally you'd pick up some more Kodak film and you know kind of start the process over again so it's a fantastic business model for Kodak they've been around for a hundred years they were the the premier elite of elite in print uh, film and so uh, Steve comes in with this this thing, and he he demos it. And like I said, the resolution was very bad. But he took a picture in the uh, the conference room before he started his talk, and it took like several minutes for this whole thing to process. And it's basically the same resolution as a maybe an icon on your your desktop. Now it's very poor resolution. You could kind of make out that there's some people in there. So he explained the science behind him. He's an engineer, so he's explaining the science behind it and, and how it works and that sort of thing. And you know the the business people in there are like. Yeah, this is great, but what are we going to do with this? So, how are you going to, you know, you can't put it in a scrapbook. You can't write on it. You can't um, share it with people. Are they just going to, you know, somehow through some device, you know, post this on their, um, uh, on their TVs? Many, you know, and color TV was around, but it was, you know, there's still black and white TVs being sold and that sort of thing. So, and the poor resolution, like it just didn't click. And in, in complete fairness, right, you know, it, it's easy to look back and say, how could they not see this? This would be a huge thing. But in, in fairness, right, no one could have predicted the, the rise of the internet and cell phones and, and all that sort of thing that went on. So um, so Steve kind of shelled that, you know, again, he's an engineer, he you know, kind of went on to the next thing and, and was sort of um, uh, making that happen. Now, I will say now, while Kodak wasn't able to you know, kind of get ahead of and kind of figure out how to fit this into their business model. They did have another opportunity in the in the '90s to kind of figure this out when um, pocket digital cameras started coming out. Um, they really even then did did make the shift. Uh, then they said, "Well, we'll make batteries for these cameras," and there were Kodak batteries, but they still didn't make that, that shift to the digital. But what they did do, which was which was um, actually smart, was they got a lot of the patents that um, Steve and others worked on, and they patented a lot of those things. a so, while well, your phone and, and other cameras, other digital cameras may not say Kodak. There's a lot of the patents in there that they're able to capitalize on. And then Kodak has pretty much totally shifted out of the, the retail market. They do, they're still in business. I had actually thought they, were, they went bankrupt, but they, they shifted to the commercial market. And, um, and that's how they shifted their business model. Uh, but you don't hear about them you know, much, excuse me, much anymore.
0: Wow. Yeah. How do you kind of make sure, you know, lesson from, from from Kodak, Now, how do you kind of make sure that, you know, uh, regardless of the position of the person in your organization, you know, you don't make the mistake of not listing them or at least testing their idea or, uh, you know, people will have ideas, good, bad. How do you kind of make sure A, they're heard and B, you know, what's the best way of testing it to see whether should you should progress move this forward or not?
1: Yeah, so, so my thoughts on that are, this applies to the situation you're describing, and it also describes to your own uh, professional development. Some of these people may be the same, but they may be different. But it's what I call your personal board of advisors. So as a leader, you're always going to be sold something, you, whether that's traditional selling from you know a vendor trying to sell you you know some gadget or something, or even from your team trying to sell their idea, or um, or a peer who's trying to you know, sell you to get some support for his project in, in exchange for your project and that sort of thing. So, especially as you move up in the, um, in the leadership roles, it's figuring out like what's kind of true and what's not. Not that people are lying to you. I think a lot of people can kind of see that pretty quickly, you know, um, but what is a good idea to your point and how do you kind of sift through all of those things? So, my, uh, the thought I have on that is to establish a, an informal board of advisors. Now, these people don't need to know that, hey, Jasper, you're on my, <laughs> you're on my board of advisors, right? It's just, it's just a, some roles that you can think about and at least you know about and that you can consult. So in, in the business sense, it's having... And, and this is sort of what I start off with. Like, There's four that I'll talk about. And there could be more. that could be different. But just as a starting point, one is to have a skeptic and um, this person is... You know, when you're sharing an idea, like you don't even have the idea out yet, and they already have a five point plan of why it will never work. You know, they're just kind of, yeah. um, kind of listing out all of those things, and that's important because uh, it shows that they're listening, right, and that they care about what you're saying, but that they're also, you know, that's what your detractors are going to come up with. So if you can rebut some of those and say, well, actually, you know, I didn't mention this part, or I need to think more about this, or wow, well, you're right, I'm not going to do this, right? You could kind of uh, uh, work through that. So, so that's a role I think about. Another one is the technical expert. Now, if you're in a technical field, that could be whoever your SME is, or even somebody that's not in the industry, like you could just run some ideas by and say, hey, you know, someone who has an engineering kind of thinking and uh, way of thinking and, and brain, you could kind of chew on a little bit. That's one that's important for me, because I'm like, I don't even know if this is possible or how might this work, or somebody who's you know, up on the latest uh, in the industry or in the technology that you could kind of run things by to kind of see what they know. So that's another role. The third role I would say is, you know, you're going to have bad days. So you need to have someone who's your cheerleader. So this is almost like a mom type character It's like, hey, you're doing a good job, you know, no matter what. It has to be genuine, right? It can't just be, you know, just platitudes. It needs to be like, hey, you know, that sucked that that didn't work out. But hey, you're, you know, you're trying to do the good thing and having that sort of support. That's a great person also when you're brainstorming ideas. It's like, hey, I have this idea about this, this thing. What do you think? It's like, yeah, you could do that and you could do this. So having that yes and person is also really important to have. The last one, uh, that, that I, the last example I use is uh, the pragmatist. So, all right, you've got this great idea. You figured out how to, you know, create this new product. You know what your skeptics are going to say. You've got a response to that. You know, you know how all this is going to work. You know, technically, work, you've got the marketing done now, and then you have this pragmatist who says, Yeah, but does anybody really need this thing? Or, Yeah, it'd be great if you had a $10 million budget, but you're never going to get that. You know, you got $10,000. So, what can you do? And, sort of, how can you break all that down? And kind of that last sort of uh, gatekeeper that like makes it a thing. So, when I think about have and And there's probably more roles right it's that's just sort of a starting point you need to know your own flat spots and how people can kind of round you out know uh, if you're a great technical person then maybe you don't need that maybe you need something else on the on the marketing side or uh, or some other areas that might be more important to you but you know really knowing yourself and then knowing where you need help and being honest about that and then getting that input so back to your your question about finding those things so if you have this board. And if they, this informal board, and if they are, you know, there could be people on your team and maybe people not. Like having that, that outside voice to sort of keep you honest on that. And and I think as you become a leader and you move up in the leadership chain, it's it's really not about having the answers. It's really about having the questions and really having those good questions. So if you're presented with like, hey, Jasper, here's this really great, you know, new thing. You know, we should go all in on this. Everybody else is doing blockchain, so we should do blockchain. Everybody else is doing, you know, um, some sort of RPA, so we should be doing that. So it's really more about you asking the questions of how are they using that. You know, how's our business? How's their business model the same or different from what we're doing? To does that does that really make, make sense for us to do that? And asking a lot of of more difficult questions and harder questions um, to kind of get to the root of that, asking of your employees, but also and your team, but also asking of yourself.
0: Huh. Here's something uh when when you're talking about that, it kinda kinda related to that 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 came to me is I know you we were talking about before our interview, we we're talking about your your change management lessons from from the Amish community yeah. while whilst you're on on vacation. I've seen that in a lot of organizations where, you know, when a, ch- a change or an idea has been brought in and they've kind of straight rolled that out. You get an email saying, Here's a story I'd like to share with you, a quick story. Yeah. So we were just um I was doing some work, some consultancy work for this organization about ten years ago, and uh, I remember they uh, decided that uh, you know, so the build, so the company was growing, and um, they said we're we're running out of desks. So just so um, we have we have purchased another space close by. What we like to do is we like to put monitors under the table so see how how long do you sit on your table for? So. Whether that was a genuine, uh, you know, way of finding out, you know, do people like sitting down or do they like, you know, would they rather work from home or do we really need that many desks? So can we do chop and change, you know, how we can work? Perhaps the idea was that, but it went the other way around, you know, people, everybody started to complain, you know, people started to pull, um, there was one person that, that had, a, I wouldn't say a dummy, but they had something which, um, it was almost a dummy and they had, uh, with the thread, they had something hanging, so it kind of moves. <laughs> um, what's that thing called when you kind of drop it and it comes back up? Yo, Hello, yo, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They, had, they had that something like that, so it kept, Once you move it, keeps moving for a long while, right? If you're not at your desk, right? So, uh-huh. so the sensor thinks there's someone's on the desk. Oh my gosh! And they decided they to do that, and you know, place went crazy, and there's a few people that left, and they freaked out. Mm. That, that's an extreme example of a change mm-hmm. that was kind of brought in. There was never consulted in. And um, and we, when we were talking about your you know experience of your Amish, talk about that. You know they have a unique way of letting uh, something in their you know in their community, which kind of affects them. How can you kind of first of all share that story, and then sure. how can you kind of bring that in an organization where it's kind of you know it benefits and people clearly know about the benefits. You know rather than someone on the top of the chain sending an email telling you this is what we're going to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I'm not sure if, I guess I'll talk a little bit about the Amish. I'm not sure how popular they are, you know, around the world or anything, but just. uh,
0: Other than, other than uh, from, if I I may say for most people in the UK, other than it's a community that's kind of like to stay with their own kind of people. And they're a little bit, if I may use the word backwards. Yeah. Um, other than that, we don't know much. Or a farming community, and that's it. That's about it.
1: Yeah. So okay, good. So I'll, I'll give a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more context. So, so you're right. Yes, they have this intense community and this and this and uh, this passion. It's a, a part of it's uh, religious uh, as well, and uh, they are very uh, religious, and they. <sighs> I, and so a lot of the technology stops around like 1850, 1860. So there's a lot of you know, like horses. There's a lot of um, uh, that, that's how they farm and, and that sort of thing. They use a lot of hand tools and um, very, very little uh, machinery or anything like that. They dress very plainly. The women wear long, uh, you know, these long dresses and these uh, bonnets. They're, it's, they have these iconic looking uh, horse and buggy, such so this. Really, it's actually kind of neat looking, uh, really sleek, black, uh really skinny uh buggy that they'll ride on. And it usually has one horse on it that it will, and you'll see them going down the roads and that sort of thing in these different areas, usually in Pennsylvania, uh Ohio. There's actually a few not too far from where I live. There's a small community as well. And they have large families and that sort of thing. So if you just flash back to, in your mind to, to 1860, you know, rural, rural America, you know, that's, that's sort of what it, what it looks like. Um, and, and that's how they like to to live. They do. And they're also known for their craftsmanship. They make a lot of great things out of, uh, you know, wood and, and that sort of thing, furniture and that kind of stuff. They're really known for their precision and, the, and their great work ethic. If you have time, I would look up just, go on to YouTube and just uh, put in your know, Amish barn building and you'll see them, they, they, they come together and they will build this enormous barn in a day. Just the whole community will come together and, and, and do that. And it's amazing to watch. So anyway, I, I would encourage you to look at that to get a little bit more flavor. So there's also a, um, it's kind of like a tourist industry, right? Where, um, you know, to go out to Amish country and, and see how they live and then they'll have shops and they'll have, these homemade you know treats and restaurants and, and goods and that sort of thing so it's something you know that's near where my wife is from so we went out there and we had been out there before but it just kind of struck me as like why you know why did they pick you know like 1860 why stop there with technology it didn't make any yeah. sense so I did a little bit of research and, and I found a couple of articles about it and what I what I found out is that they have as I mentioned this uh, extreme affinity for community and and relying on each other for 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 everything. And it's not that anything is strictly forbidden. And in fact, there's only two things that are strictly forbidden, and that's cars and television. That will if you use those, you're you're out of the community. Everything else, they really take this intentional approach to look at it. because sometimes I'll see people they'll be using a power tool. I'm like, well they didn't have that in 1860 where we're using this, you know, you know, either this sort of tractor or or something else. Um, why, you know, why is that allowed now? And what I found is that whenever there is some sort of new technology, they have this, this board sort of, that gets together. And they say, Hey, and I'm making this up, right. You know, we want to use a, we want to see if a chainsaw, you know, uh, we'd, we'd like to start using those. So they have this uh, sort of board. I'm sure they call it something different. That's my word. And, and they kind of take a look at it and they test it out. And really what they're testing is like, what impact is this going to have on our community? If it, it has the negative impact on the community, then we're not going to, you know, we're not going to use it. We're going to disallow it uh, sort of thing. But if it doesn't, or it enhances community, then we'll go ahead and, and, uh, and allow this tool to come in. And that, it, it makes me think like, I'm not that intentional with the the tools I get, you know, I, I kind of got this, you know, shiny app uh, <laughs> fetish where it's like, Oh, a new pro- productivity tool. Let me, let me download yeah. that. And then I've got, you know, a thousand apps on my phone. And I, I don't know why I got them, but, um, but to, they really want to have that, uh, that intentionality behind it. And so, so for the car, for example, the, the Amish live in these tightly knit areas where you can walk to your neighbor's house um, or take a short buggy ride over there to get something. So the idea is if, if if I'm out of eggs and I, I need eggs, if I go in and get my car, drive to the store, I can go and do that and come home and I won't talk to a soul. And so that's not what the Amish want. They want you to they want me to go over, go over to Jasper's house, walk over there to my neighbor and say, Hey, I need some eggs. You know, oh, how are you doing? You know, oh so cow got born or whatever, right? And sort of sort of having that, or maybe I can give you some milk or trade or something like that where you and I are going to have a conversation, just kind of strengthen that bond as opposed to what I mentioned before, just not even seeing anyone. So that's why they disallow the cars and and the pretty much the same thing for the TV, right? You have this, uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe the computer's more now than, uh, than, uh, than TVs, but, you know, there's no sense of, uh, of a collective around doing something, you're inviting this really stranger into your home um, and that sort of thing. So I, I really thought about that. It's like, oh, well, maybe they're onto something. Um, as I mentioned, you know, for me, it's the you know the the shiny apps and that sort of thing that I'll I'll, I'll pick up. But then with organizations, it's the same thing. And like we talked about just a minute ago, it's like uh, everybody else is doing blockchain. I better do blockchain. Everybody else is doing RPA. I better do RPA without thinking about. Why are you using that? What are you doing that for? What do you, What is this in service of? Uh, to use a consulting phrase for it. Um, and to the example that you were sharing, right? If you, like, I want the stats of how long people are at their desks, well, you're going to get numbers, you're going to get stats, right? But if you communicate to the groups, like, hey, uh, why we are trying to do this, and I'm stealing your story and just kind of making this up, but like, you know, it's um, why it's better to have this. We want to increase the amount of telework and so, we need to get an accurate example or an accurate um, uh, data set of how much these desks are actually used, and this is the way that we're going to do it and communicating that clearly so that people understand why they are doing it as opposed to now I have to create some I've used that my ingenuity instead of it being applied to my job I'm using it to you know to to kind of game the system sort of thing um so I think it's important for leaders to I, you know I have a friend who says you know, we under communicate 100% of the time. And and I think that's really great, because as a leader, as you're moving up the the, the leadership uh, ranks, you get access to more and more information and, and you, get, you get a bigger view of the big picture. And you're holding all of these things. And it's communicating that, you know, why we have to do this, why I need to do this study, why I need to know, you know, that you're in this, uh, that you're working in this Area and how many people are on the seats. Maybe that translates into like if we have fewer people, or if we need fewer people on site, we could do more remote workers. That reduces the rent. Then I can hire more people to help for whatever the job is, or it allows us to take on this other role. And how much of that—that's you know, always the balance, right? As a leader, how much of that do you share? Because some of that is, well, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm not—you know—it's not fully fleshed out idea. But you have to give people a sense of where you're headed, so that they can be supportive for you. And um, yeah. So super long answer. Sorry, Jasper, but no. that's that's sort of my thoughts on the on the So It advice. really
0: comes down to communication and how you kind of put that out there for them to see what you what you where you're going. It's just selling that vision. So you're you're almost selling your vision there. Absolutely. Awesome. So now we are now coming towards the end of the show. So what's been one of your biggest lessons, uh, um, you know, in, in leadership, especially? Oh gosh. Um yeah. Uh
1: that's a tough one. I would say you know I, I think it's really about humility, I think is is really the the biggest thing that I think I've learned as far as being a leader, and really the the the, the trust that other people um, put into me. there's a a book called uh, the, it's actually a parenting book, but it's called uh, uh the Gardener and the Carpenter. It's two different styles to to parenting and they really apply to to being a leader and and mentoring uh, others as well. And just really quick, the the gist of it is, you know, if you're a carpenter, you know, think of like the, the tiger mom, who's, you know, you know, your dad was a doctor, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to go to this preschool, you know, and, and get into that, and then to this private school, and then kind of laying out the, the entire um, the entire way. And it actually applies to the other example that you shared, too. Like, we're going to get these metrics, and this is what we're going to do, and we're going to, you know, find out how many seats we need, and that sort of thing. And that can be good in some areas, right? There's, there is a need for that. The other approach, and one that I've adopted, is the Gardner approach, where you know, Jasper. if we were working together, it would be like, you know, I will know sort of what your skills are and that sort of thing. But I, I, I can't say what you're going to be, you know, five years from now. But what I can do is in our time together is to, you know, nurture the soil, make sure it's good, you know, weed it, water it, that sort of thing. And then as you're growing to put stakes in there to kind of help you, you know, grow in the areas that you need to. And, you know, after our time together, then you're, you know, a, a better off and a better leader later on. And I've had numerous leaders who have done that for me uh, throughout my career, who've kind of taken a chance on me. When I look back, I'm like, I don't know if I would take a chance on that guy. You know me, Um, but uh, but but they did. And uh, I was just reflecting this morning uh, um, about a friend or a former boss I had who who did that. I was uh, this is back to my flying days, and I was um, I was trying out for this this unit, and I needed to to practice with this um, with some planning. And I went to my boss, he was relatively new uh, to our unit. And I told him what I was trying to do. And he said, you know what, we're going to go, uh, we're going out to this field exercise. Uh, why don't you plan it? I'll help you. I'll be next to you. But why don't you plan it and you brief it to, to our boss, so his boss. And I said, wow, that was more than I expected. And And he let me do it. He really kind of Loosen the reins on me and loosen the control a little bit. He was comfortable enough in, in his, um, his leadership style and, and journey that he felt he, like he could do that. And so I've tried to model that um, throughout my career. I had other leaders who have done the same thing, but I've tried to model that as well. When I was a, an instructor pilot, I would let my students, you know, go a little bit, um, you know, as long as they weren't going to do anything unsafe or hurt us, like, man, that's not going to work, but we're going to go do it anyway because that's how you're going to learn. Um, and that sort of thing. So I, I think the, the the humility of realizing that I'm not perfect, I'm going to screw up. And that if I own up to it quicker, I'm going to learn something from it. And other people are going to learn from it as opposed to, oh, I meant to do that. Or, you know, uh, it wasn't my fault or shifting blame or something like that. I've never had a lot of respect for those type of people. And so I, I didn't want to be like that. So I figured if I could,
0: you know, I can,
1: you know, eat a little humble pie and be a little embarrassed for a little bit, I'm totally fine with that. So that's probably the biggest lessons I've learned.
0: Awesome. And I definitely can't let you go without asking you, what's uh, what's been the most valuable mistake you ever made? Wow.
1: Uh, there've been a, quite a few. So I would say the one that comes to mind is what I call my four-star mistake. So I was working at an office job here in DC, and I was responsible for divvying out it was probably 130 140 million dollars out to all these different programs and i had developed this uh this financial model that was going to shift it all out and we kind of we had a bunch of metrics on how it was going to go and i'm just because i mentioned metrics i will say that i did enroll a lot of people on that right so they all understood how uh, they had input into um into what the model looked like but so i do i do take my own medicine but um but anyway I had particularly in this model, and I was responsible for briefing up to a to a four star general, and he was on the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So just think of that's like the there's only seven I think generals that are on this, and it's the the top of the Department of Defense. And um, so I was responsible for briefing him on what the plan was, just so he could be prepared for for any impacts. And I had done it before; I briefed this general before uh, during his Senate um, confirmation hearing. To prep him for that, so so I knew him and that sort of thing. What I and so to get between you know Travis down here at the bottom up to this four star general, there's all kinds of you know check boxes I had to go through and you know lawyers and finance and you know other generals and that sort of thing before it got to you know the final end. And as we were going through all of that, I got overconfident and I made the classic blunder of uh, not maintaining good version control. And so the spreadsheet that I went in with which I should not have done. <laughs> but the spreadsheet I went in with was not the one I thought I had or the one that had been, had been uh, briefed. And so it was missing some information on it. So I go in there again, I'm with my, my boss. And then of course, as general both of our bosses. And I went through my little spiel. And because you don't have very long with them, I had like maybe 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I went through my little spiel, expecting it to be like in and out, you know, move on with my day. He was looking at it. He kind of saw his forehead kind of wrinkle up. And he looked, he didn't look at me. he looked at my boss, he said, you're missing an entire program out of this. And I know I just went, you know, completely white, I'm sure. I just kind of, you know, the blood draining out of my face. Like, oh, man, I can't believe I got the wrong version. And uh, just completely professionally embarrassed out of that. So it sucked a lot, of course. But what I... I think the only reason I succeeded in, in my career after that is because my I had a lot of what I call social capital with my boss or political capital with my boss where like, he knew I messed up. He knew he didn't have to you know, you know chew my yeah. butt about it. And he's like, okay, all right, let's get this right. And that sort of thing. But we already had that bond, that, that trust there. And that's another thing I try to emulate as well. It's like, you know, always... I didn't mean to screw up. You know, I had every intention of, you know, going in there with the right numbers. And my, you know, my boss got that, you know, just sometimes stuff happens. If I could go back, I would definitely like slow down, even delay the meeting if I needed to, just to make sure I had the the right version and it, ensuring that other people took a look at it, people that weren't on the project to say, Hey, does this make sense you know, what's missing? And somebody would have called it out real quickly and said, yeah, dummy, you know, you're missing the whole line here. It would have saved me some embarrassment. But, um, I think that's what I learned most uh, from that because it was because it was you know really high stakes, but I I didn't realize it at the time where I kind of took it for granted that you know I needed to kind of keep my eye on the ball. I was already on to the next thing because I thought because I had done it before and that sort of thing. So always being, always giving your best, always giving that hundred percent you know attention to detail, even if you think it's a mundane sort of task, and then having that relationship with your with your team um, and always always thinking the best of people too, right? I think that's uh, that's sort of important. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jasper.
0: What's, what's the best way for people to connect with you, ask you questions and uh, kind of... Yeah, get get to know you more.
1: Absolutely. So, um, the LinkedIn is probably the best place. So just uh, you just search for Travis Wright there, and then um, and thank you again for mentioning my book earlier. But it's out. Uh, Making new mistakes is the name of the book. It's on Amazon, uh, and makingnewmistakes.info is the website for more information. And I'll be carrying on the conversation there. I'll be writing a series of articles and that sort of thing, where I I really like to get feedback on on this whole process and. of my thoughts and let me know where i'm right let me know where i'm wrong and uh and what your experiences are
0: awesome well thank you so much for joining you jasper i hope you got some great value and insights from this episode and if you're someone who wants to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur then i have some great free resources for you if you visit www.jazzbearaurora.com that's www.jazzbearaurora.com and drop me a line, I will send you a ebook and also a one hour masterclass. And also um, go and take the escape the 95 survey, uh, which will help you understand where you are right now um, and where the gaps are in your knowledge to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur. And if you're a business and you need help growing or if you have any uh, issues that you'd like to discuss, then yeah, once again, visit the website and I'll be more than happy to help you. Thank you for listening.